Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, we're dedicating the full hour to politics. The mass politics profs are here to give us their insight and analysis to help us sort out what's happening on Beacon Hill and in the Oval Office. What's going on with national immigration policy? How has the Me Too movement affected politics? And it's officially a midterm year. What will be the hot topics and who will make moves come November? Plus, Ayanna Presley takes on Mike Capuano and a new group of emboldened lawmakers. We'll discuss it all and more on this all-politics show. Joining me in the studio, Maurice Moe Cunningham, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello again, Moe. Hi, Kelly. Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Aaron. Great to be here. And Peter Upertasio, Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Stonehill College. Hi again, Peter. Hi, Callie. And also joining me from the studios of New England Public Radio, Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Welcome back, Gerald. Happy to be here from the, the Great West. Oh, of the Great West. Okay. <laughs> um, here we go. We had other ways to start this show, but we, of course, must pay attention to what just happened, which is the the government shut down briefly and then got started again. And President Trump signed the spending bill that was at issue on the floor into law. It will provide additional funds for the military and disaster relief for the victims of last year's hurricanes and wildfires. That brief shutdown didn't last long, but one of the contentious points, or the contentious point for Senator Rand Paul was really about how much more the spending bill was going to drive up the deficit. So let's listen to Rand Paul speaking from the floor of the Senate, where he held up a passage of this bill. The reason I'm here tonight is to put people on the spot. I want people to feel uncomfortable. I want them to have to answer people at home who said, how come you were against President Obama's deficits, and then how come you're for Republican deficits? Isn't that the very definition of hypocrisy? I'll let you all answer his question and then respond to what you think his stance was all about. I'll start with you, Mo. Uh, judge not that ye shall not be judged. <laughs> uh, listen, I th- Senator Brian Schatz from Hawaii had it exactly right. He said, you know, Senator Paul voted for $1.5 trillion in deficits in the tax bill just recently. I mean, really, who is he to talk? It, it's it's amazing. It's a sign of the dysfunction. It's, it really is the sign of... Judge not that you shall not be judged. Okay, Aaron. I mean, it's wildly disingenuous. Uh, I think Mo hits it, the nail on the head there that, you know, you voted to cut uh, $1.5 trillion, right, or, or billion. Yeah. I don't even know. The numbers are so high now. But it, you voted to do this to give these tax cuts that go wildly disproportionately to the affluent. And then, lo and behold, you, you either spend that money or you run in a deficit. They're starving the beast of government, and this is a way to try to eventually come after entitlements mm. and the so I, I think they set up this play, and now the play is happening, and pretending—I didn't know there was a game going on. Mm. Peter? 
Well, the National Republican Party has never cared about deficits when there's a Republican president. So this doesn't surprise me. They only ever care about deficits when there's a Democratic president. They use them for political gain. They run against deficit spending until they're in power. This is true going back to the Reagan years. So there's nothing that's happened here. Just the numbers are greater. While I agree with my colleagues about Senator Paul, at least he was willing to step into the Senate and say he certainly is in favor of those tax cuts. He's not in favor of this additional spending and to to hold his colleagues' feet to the fire and to point out what is political hypocrisy on behalf of the uh, Senate and House leadership. Gerald, I, I think what Peter is saying is that he maybe should call himself out because he has been hypocritical, too, by supporting the tax bill just uh, weeks ago. Senator Rand always reminds me of just how easy a gig it is to be a libertarian. I mean, it's what a great gig. I mean, you when you think about it, the reason he can be so blatantly hypocritical is because when you really come down to it, he can tell himself and his supporters, well, of course I voted for tax cuts because I then want to cut all the spending that would therefore make the tax cuts work. In other words, the libertarian philosophy is so wonderfully immature, so wonderfully unrealistic, but so useful in the sense that it gives you sort of an escape hatch all the time. Mm. And so it's it's wildly irresponsible, but at the end of the day, he has a lot of support, even young support, because of this wonderfully American anti-government attitude. So I just to put a button on this, I just want people to know how huge these numbers are. So the Budget Control Act, this is according to the New York Times, $300 billion in additional spending for the military and domestic programs over the next two years. To be noted that this goes on till 2019, beyond the pale of where some of these people will be in Congress. This is on top of last year's, yeah, <laughs> last year's $1.5 trillion tax cut package. And the White House on Monday is supposed to unveil a $1.5 trillion infrastructure plan. So to your point, Aaron, the New York Times says here it plans to offset that $200 billion through unspecified cuts. And uh, you're pointing out that that's, they're likely then going to turn to Medicare. Right. And Those are, they are not unspecified. They aren't named yet, but yes. we know exactly where they're going to go Okay, and who that's going to hurt on top of this tax cut bill. Well, let's turn to another depressing subject, and that's immigration, (laughs) because what didn't happen in the shutdown, not shutdown, was addressing the needs of the DACA recipients. So a few days ago, uh, Nancy Pelosi surprised everybody by standing on the floor and really calling out Paul Ryan said, we need a vote, we need a vote. Let's hear Nancy. She spoke for eight hours on the floor of the House of the Representatives in support of the Dreamers on February 7th, the longest continuous speech on the floor of the House, I guess, ever. Mr. Speaker, this debate is an utter waste of time. Every day, courageous, patriotic dreamers lose their status. Every day, the American dream slips further out of reach. As members of Congress, we have a moral responsibility to act now to protect dreamers who are the pride of our nation and are American in every way but on paper. All right. Now, before you all talk, let's just hear President Donald Trump speaking about his views on immigration during the State of the Union address. My duty and the sacred duty of every elected official in this chamber is to defend Americans, to protect their safety, their families, their communities, and their right to the American dream. Because Americans are dreamers too. All right, Gerald, I'm gonna start with you this go round. 
Some people are saying that the Democrats caved by not standing firm and, you know, joining in with the Republicans to pass this spending bill and keep the government open because they didn't get the deal that Nancy Pelosi stood on the House floor for eight hours in four-inch heels to make her point about. And the reason they are angry about it is because of the kind of uh, rhetoric that President Trump used, not just in his State of the Union address, but continuing. So where are we here? And Ryan says they're going to bring it to the floor at some point, but he didn't say when. Yeah, and and to the sort of average American listener, that doesn't sound like a very good deal. Mm. But what's happening is, in both parties really, but you have a a sort of a classic sort of politicos versus purists, policy activists versus legislators, kind of an internal problem in the Democratic coalition. And they're trying, obviously, to get the best that they can. The problem for the Democrats is they don't have the luxury of being purely obstructionist because they're actually the party that thinks government needs to work. So they don't have the same kind of leverage that Republicans do because Republicans believe the government should do less or not do anything. So they're in a much easier obstructive position. The idea that the Democrats had leverage, they did and they used it. We have a six-week reprieve here, and if they get the debate, they want. In other words, the leverage still exists. They still mm-hmm. haven't got a budget bill for this year. And so they're doing what you learn in classic how to be a legislator 101. It doesn't please the Bernie Sanders crowd. That's true. And they're looking at the political arena and seeing that, you know, obnoxious stand your ground wins. But what they're not doing is looking at the real legislative context. They're not thinking about how legislation works. They're just demanding political guts. And the reality is what the Democrats have put together here has really funded a great number of Democratic priorities that would not have been funded. They really made a lot of progress, and they haven't surrendered on the immigration issue. In six weeks, we'll be back. That's Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Who agrees with Gerald? Not me. Okay, Aaron (laughs) O'Brien of UMass Boston. Uh, With love, Gerald. I I mean, I I think the Democrats misplayed this so fundamentally. It is a political game. And so once we assume that it is political, the, the Republican Party has been beholden to that Freedom Caucus. And they've said for months, oh, we'll do something on DACA, we'll do something on DACA. They haven't. The Democratic Party, it's not that just the activists want DACA taken care of and to help these um, young people. It's that the whole of the Democratic base largely wants that. And the Democrats have not been able to deliver on it. Once uh, they did the shutdown after two days, they got scared and they caved. And what Democrats need to do is be beholden, not just to the left of the party, but the base of their party that wants a deal on DACA. And guess what? That's popular. We know these numbers with 80 to 90 percent of mass publics. And so the Republicans are the ones who control government, are beholden to a sliver of the population on DACA. But Democrats misplayed, played poorly. And it's great that Nancy Pelosi did the, you know, eight hours. But we could have held this up um, before. Before Christmas, before the holidays and the like. So I, I think it's a pretty big failure of Democrats not to understand both politics and policy. Aaron O'Brien, UMass Boston. Peter, do you agree with Aaron? Uh, only slightly. I mean, I think that, you know, I think the problem as far as I can tell, uh, well, one of the problems is, to be frank, Nancy Pelosi is a, an incredibly unpopular figure nationwide. And, 
there is a political reality here, which is there are plenty of Republicans who would love to have have her speak for eight hours. They'd love to have her speak for 16 hours, Mm. 20 hours. Mm. The more that she is out there and visible, the better Republicans do. And they're certainly going to raise a lot of money off of this in a year that's going to be terrible for them. But I have to say, if they're going into midterm elections and the economy for reasons that are, are terrible in terms of these tax cuts and this spending bill at a time when the economy is doing well. But if they're going into the midterm elections with 3% growth and Nancy Pelosi continuing to lead the charge on DACA, I I think there are plenty of Republicans who would say, give me more of that. Peter Robitaccio from Stonehill College. Now, Mo, the thing is, it's not just the base of the Democratic Party that wants this. Every single poll says most Americans, that includes people outside of that base, want a DACA resolution. So why couldn't there be some kind of political leveraging something of that? Because in that case, then that means the base is huge. It's not just a political base. In that sense, though, it reminds me a little bit of the campaign finance issue where everybody wants something done about the money in politics, particularly the dark money, and yet people don't feel strongly enough about it uh, in that sense. And yet there are people who feel strongly enough about it. We've been focusing on those in the Democratic Party, but there are plenty of people on the Republican side who feel strongly about it, and there's an enormous, enormous gusher of pressure from Fox News, from Breitbart, from Rush Limbaugh, and a lot of Republicans react to that. And that is a a huge counterforce here. And I think you can't underestimate the amount of pressure these folks get from that far right wing, which has stopped immigration reform since the McCain-Kennedy bill years ago, when George W. Bush was on the side of doing something to resolve this issue. It's a huge issue on the right. And there's a lot of pressure from that side. I think Moe's spot on right there, because what he's saying, what he's pointing out in my view is that there's lots of issues where we can say 80% of the public wants it, and it doesn't happen. Marijuana would be legal in the entire nation if we could say that of national polling numbers. The problem is that we have a federal separation of powers kind of a system that has to be played a little bit differently. And I think the Democrats, and I don't think know that they're going to succeed, but they're clearly trying to play this. They're trying to uh, realize that we lost a really big election. They really do have control, and we really do need to get things funded. And so they're, they're trying to get things done as best they can, and they have yet to surrender the leverage. And because DACA is so popular, they want it to be on the table in the election. They want the Republicans' feet hmm. to the fire in 2018 on DACA. That's going to be key to certain purple races. So in much the same way that Peter said the Republicans love to see Nancy talking, then maybe the Democrats are saying, keep holding it up. Let's head to 2018. But I think (laughs) there's a difference there that that I think in the Democratic Party that, you know, the Bernie folks, other individuals like that, people who feel strongly on DACA are willing to abandon the Democratic Party. They don't think Mm. the Democratic Party speaks for them, whereas the Breitbart folks and others like that say that we own this Republican Party. We own them and they're beholden to us. So Democrats, I think are playing way too risky because those individuals who don't see Democrats pulling through on DACA won't show up for them. They won't give them money. Mm -hmm. And that's the concern turnout. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are four of the Mass Politics profs. Erin O'Brien, you just heard her, of UMass Boston. Peter Rubitaccio of Stonehill College. Mo Cunningham of UMass Boston. And Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University. We're dedicating the entire hour to discussing national and local politics. 
So I really want to go back. It seems like months and months ago, but it wasn't. The tax cut bill (laughs) and all of the implications thereof. And what I've been fascinated by are watching some of the ads by people on both sides of these issues. There were some who were out that were out there before the vote and then afterwards. I'm continuing to see a lot. So I'm going to play a couple so you can see sort of where people came down on it. So let's look at this clip from an ad paid for by the Job Creators Network featuring <laughs> Joseph Simrivivo, president and CEO of Joseph's Light Cookies. The ad is part of a campaign called Tax Cuts Work. When this tax bill was signed into law, we gave raises to all of our team members, ranging from $3,500 to $4,000 a year. We sent out a message saying, a tax cut to us is more money for us to give to you, to reward you for that hard work. That's what tax cuts do. So we're elated about this tax bill. Now, let's take a listen from a clip from an ad from Protect Healthcare, to your point, Aaron, earlier, urging the government not to cut Medicare funding. Experts warn that this year's flu is one of the worst in years, and seniors are especially vulnerable. Congress could hurt access to care when seniors, and all of us, need it the most. Urge Congress, don't cut Medicare funding for hospitals. And finally, to Peter, your point about Nancy Pelosi and her lack of popularity. Here's an ad from the American Action Network called Crumbs, which calls out Nancy Pelosi's objection to the tax cuts. Congress just passed historic middle-class tax cuts, saving $2,000 for middle-class families. And Nancy Pelosi calls it the worst bill in the history of the United States Congress. 300,000 new jobs will be created. This tax bill is Armageddon. With bonuses and better benefits for millions, which Pelosi calls crumbs that they are giving to workers. Tell Nancy Pelosi she's wrong. Middle-class tax cuts are working. It's so pathetic. <laughs> All right. So they're, they're, the air, <laughs> they're the air wars out there. And by the way, I see these ads a lot because I'm watching, sad to say, a lot of TV. So, I, so they're playing over and over again, clearly with an effort to keep this tax cut bill that may look as though it got passed and people have moved on, but it really hasn't. Why is there so much energy still around actually making the case for the tax cut bill and supporting it, and the warning signs from other people saying, I don't care if you're getting a $1,000 bonus. In the end, they're going to go back and cut Medicare funding to pay for this. Gerald, I'll let you start off. Sure. Well, I mean, it's a big argument. It is the thing that when you're arguing about taxes, that's the issue that never really goes out of style in terms of talking about it. And so my own conversations with people who are happy about the tax cut, which, by the way, isn't just Trump supporters. I talked the sort of actual argument about the sort of macroeconomic reality. What's this going to mean to you in five years? What's this? Those are real, reasonable discussions. And one side has an argument, the Democrats, that this is going to be a medium and long-term problem. Obviously, it has inflationary issues that helped cause the stock market instability as well. But in the long run, we're talking about a situation where it's not just that they're only giving small tax cuts that are going to expire in five years and they're giving the rich people a bunch of tax cuts. It's that this is going to actually force the issue of spending cuts in a way that is going to be damaging. That's why the Democrats are playing on that part of the argument, because you always have to talk about what's going to be lost. And telling people that their tax cuts aren't a lot 
that's a, not a great argument. Telling them that they might go away in five years, that's not a very powerful argument. You really have to have something that you can say with some kind of conviction, this is in jeopardy. And so that explains the, I wouldn't call it Metascare because I think it's real, but that explains the discussion about on the Democratic side about the danger to Medicare. On the other side, it's just a, sort of this notion that something got done, something got done. So mm -hmm. you can't keep telling me that Trump is terrible, something got done. And frankly, the budget deal for six weeks they just cut will also produce a lot of folks saying the president did something great, even though the reality is this was not the president's deal at all. The, the reality is the president is sort of a third party just sitting there who will sign anything that the, the speaker can convince him is a win for him. Mo, are the people who are getting the $1,000 bonuses not paying attention to what this means or could mean in, let's say, Medicare losses? I don't think there's any reason for anybody to be unhappy with $1,000, frankly. I mean, this is a tried and true and a very effective winning strategy for, for Republicans over the years. George W. Bush did it. Very small, uh, relatively payoffs for middle-class folks. But there's no reason to be unhappy with that if you've got $1,000 in your pocket. But big, long-term payoffs for the wealthy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what's happened. And it's a pretty effective strategy, I think. But bad for the economy, overall bad for the middle class. Uh, but in the near term, and by the near term we're talking 2018 elections, a pretty good thing for Republicans to be able to brag about. So, Aaron, you've got some research that suggests that people can change their minds about this, even <laughs> yes. if they know that mm -hmm. the wealthy are getting more and they're getting... Mm -hmm as Nancy Pelosi would say, crumbs. Crumbs. Uh, yeah. And we've already seen the polling shift on this. The tax cut was very unpopular. And now we're looking at about a 40-60 split in, what, a couple of weeks? So the, the polling has changed. There are um, two sets of research. One is my favorite because it's a great title, and it's Homer Gets a Tax Cut, and it's Homer Simpson. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, he, the, the cartoon goes, he's holding on to, like, a $10 bill, and his boss has piles of money behind mm -hmm. him. But Homer's very happy and excited. And that's part of what the Democratic argument is. You're being tricked. You're not smart enough. And who likes being told you're tricked, you're not smart enough? To Mo's point, listen, if a millionaire has another 10,000 or 20,000 or whatever, this that doesn't mean my thousand isn't nice. Mm -hmm. So I think the strategy here is twofold. One, you have to know a lot about how government spends money. And you also have to have this idea that government knows better than I. Mm. Um, and we know a lot and work with by Kathy Kramer Walsh, Larry Jacobs and others that a lot of individuals who um, think government's been a part of the problem don't really understand that your Medicare is government. Mm. <laughs> right. Yes, that's you know, true. Th that that idea and all of a sudden, listen, I know how to spend that thousand dollars better than you do. Or if government has the money and this is very important, it doesn't go. And I'm doing air quotes for the to people like me. So I think there's racial components to it as well. So I think this is your original question is why are we still focusing on this? Mm -hmm. Why all these ad wars? How this tax cut gets understood by mass publics is absolutely vital to 2018. And mm -hmm. so that's why people are continuing on it. And I think it's reasonable for a lot of individuals in the United States to think, I like this money. Peter. I agree with Aaron completely, and I just want to pick up on that last point because the importance of 2018, I think, can't be underestimated. All other things being equal, this president is a nightmare for the re-election attempt of House and Senate Republicans and governors and others. However, going into the 2018 election, brought to you by the Republican Party, which is why you're going to continue to see these ads, people have a little more money in their pocket. It's not just the $1,000 bonus that they might have received, but their withholdings have changed, and so their paychecks have grown a little bit. 
I'll get back to that in a second with Paul Ryan and the teacher that he encountered. <laughs> and um, wow! So yeah. there's, you know, people are feeling immediate uh, impact. And the bill that the president signed is going to pump billions and billions of dollars into the economy, a stimulus that it's not at all clear the economy needed, but certainly will be a stimulus for Republican fortunes, which are going to take a hit no matter what. But if this might stabilize the ship, you may be looking, as I said earlier, at an economy that is growing this year right around the time of the midterms by 3% or more as a result of these tax cuts and as a result of the stimulus. That's not what they're calling it, but that is, they're, they're mm-hmm. pumping all this money into the economy. So that may help to stabilize the Republican Party. And of course, all of the problems associated with that are for someone yeah. else to deal with. Mm-hmm. It may very likely be Democrats next year yeah. who have taken back control of Congress or at least the House and are now stuck with the long-term problems associated with this. But, you know, getting back to that point that Pelosi made, and this is where I think I'd be really interested to watch the polling on this. When Paul Ryan tweeted out about that teacher who found that her paycheck had grown by a $1.50 a week, and that would be enough to pay for a Costco membership, I mean, they're not even trying to hide it. He did eventually delete the tweet, mm-hmm. which is, of course, silly because nothing is <laughs> right. deleted. Yes, but, you know, that, right. that really is just, a, that's a sense of where some Republican priorities are, right? The, the, a teacher is bringing home a dollar fifty more. A colleague of mine at Stonehill last night in our economics department crunched the numbers and showed what Tom Brady's tax cut uh, would be as a result of this uh, relative to the dollar fifty mm-hmm. that the teacher is is bringing home. I of course am a big Brady fan, so you know I think more power to him. But what he can do with with <laughs> his tax cut, right, uh, relative to that public school teacher, I, I think that's the argument that Democrats are going to keep trying to make. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's important to note that this is a long term Republican strategy. This started in the 80s with Reagan, starving the beast is what they call it, right? So yes, you're in government now, but let's set up the economic conditions that we get what we want, even when Democrats are in. So you give this huge tax cut, and then all of a sudden you, you have these deficit spending problems, and then you have to go under after entitlements because it creates a false narrative. It creates a false problem that needs to be solved. So this is a successful strategy by Republicans for well over 30 years. Well, I note just as a way to close this out that in this bill that just got signed, what we're talking about is money for both the military, which was going to happen, that feeds the base of the Republican Party, but also disaster relief. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, to your point, Aaron, these are people like me. I've been waiting for this disaster relief. We'll see how much of that ends up in Puerto Rico. That's another question. But certainly for the people in uh, Florida and in Houston, Mm -hmm. this is very serious. Mm -hmm. Um, Callie, don't forget that it also included the lifting of the caps from the budget deal of 2010. I mean, they, yeah. they cleaned up some of the issues. I mean, there's some there's a lot of substance in this bill. And again, it takes you back to the reality that Democrats don't have the luxury of claiming success by not getting anything done. They have to they yes. have to be able to say we've done something. And that me and that unfortunately helps politically the incumbents of both parties. And obviously, in this case, that's more helpful to Republicans. The Democrats appear to be counting on the president is destroying democracy line. And you know what? That sounds like a 2020 strategy, not a 2018 strategy. Mm-hmm. So the prospects of taking over the House and Senate, I think, have gone down quite precipitously in recent weeks. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Peter Rubitaccio of Stonehill College, Mo Cunningham of UMass Boston, and Gerald Duquette, you just heard him, of Central Connecticut State University. We're dedicating the entire hour to discussing national and local politics. I want to take a minute to look at the impact. It's kind of silent. People have mentioned it. It's popped up in stories, but it's really important. How many boards, committees, agencies, and groups that are shutting down or been essentially shut down due to either legislation or the people now in charge uh, so that the Trump administration it really is administering far fewer people in critical spaces. Now, before people listening say, well, that's what he promised to do. He said smaller government. That's what he's doing. Yeah, but a lot of these people are the critical people. He didn't say get rid of the critical people. He said get rid of the numbers of people. And it doesn't seem to be working that way. Peter, I'll let you start with this. What's the impact of this? Well, I think the impact is going to be something that we've never seen before. And Gerald and Aaron and others have, have discussed the, the Republican mentality about regarding government. So less government, they believe government doesn't work. It's pretty rare. You go back and look at Republican administrations, there's no good model for Republicans not staffing the government and not actually putting uh, nominees forward and not filling crucial positions or putting people into positions where they have no business being at all. We're seeing that in this first year of the Trump administration all over the place and in critical agencies and critical departments. And there's six, I think, I, I heard on uh, NPR that there are still six uh, critical roles in the Justice Department that have nobody fulfilling them. And and so this, this is unlike anything we've ever seen before. Um, this isn't a view of government is a problem. This is a, a really radical departure from any pre-existing norm uh, not We don't have top people in the State Department, ambassadors, and in, in agencies uh, that run the gamut. And so I, I find it not terribly hard to explain for two reasons. One, this president has no interest in administration and hasn't appointed anyone close to him who does or has real experience in administering these complex agencies. And he's not I'm guessing, asking any questions on that, or has anyone around him who's asking questions about these agencies that need to be staffed? And also, I'm guessing it's hard to find good people who want to work for this president and this White House. So that is true, Mo. Some people have left because they don't want to work for this White House. Yeah. I note that this uh, piece that I'm looking at from the Washington Post talks about a Noah Coonan, who was the former infrastructure director, I think we need him, um, to the 18, yeah. uh, the high-profile office created to boost the government's digital services. I think we need that. And he said he lost so much staff he couldn't take it anymore, so he left. Then there is a real issue around census. The guy who was the head of the census left. We know this is a critical, critical role. And many people under him who are critical to know who know how to do it, for example. Now, here's one that just takes me out. A complicated workaround at Immigration and Customs Enforcement, where Deputy Director Thomas Holman has been serving as acting director while he awaits confirmation. So to continue as Chief Mo, he has to sign his name with this title, Deputy Director and Senior Official Performing the Duties of the Director. I think it was said best on the Lawfare blog about a year ago, the Trump administration is uh, malevolence tempered by incompetence. <laughs> but it has huge effects, as here, uh, as elsewhere. You mentioned the census, which is shouldn't be deeply political, but is very deeply political, but it's a very serious matter. 
going forward for redistricting, for, uh, for the gerrymandering controversy that's going on. Uh, it's huge. But you see this over and over again. There are six officials in the DOJ who have to be Senate confirmed, and no, there hasn't even been a nomination for those. Mm-hmm. It's throughout the government. It is incompetence, but it has a huge impact on the steady administration of justice. And uh, close with this, you know, we've talked about Republican strategy over the years. The Republican strategy is for many, many years now to claim you know, government is bad, government is inept, government is incompetent. And when they're in power, they do what they can to make it so. No one as effectively as Donald Trump has made government inept, incompetent, foolish, and a place where competent, decent people want to resign from. Gerald, I note that uh, in the Bureau of Prisons, they've lost more than 2,200 employees. Why? Because of privatization. Yeah, it shouldn't surprise anyone that Donald Trump would have absentee landlord tendencies, right? So the the thing is this. It is really, I kind of think of him as an accidental ideologue because incompetence and disinterest is really a big part of the puzzle, but it's not the whole puzzle, right? There is some very minor precedent for what he's sort of doing. And Ronald Reagan obviously appointed people like Clarence Thomas to the EEOC. Why? Because he didn't want it to work right. James Watt, you know, you can think about the Reagan process where he wanted people to run agencies that were against what the agency did. That's obviously happening in this administration. So you Bet- have a combination. Betsy DeVos, of- Gerald. Mm-hmm. Betsy yeah. DeVos. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so th- there's plenty of evidence that that the difference, of course, is that when it happened in the Reagan administration, it was something that had to be subtle. It was something that couldn't be so obnoxious and out there. What we have now is a proud assertion of we're going to destroy these agencies. We're going to stop these horrible bureaucracies from ruining your lives. That is not something Reagan could actually say outwardly. It was a much more subtle thing. So there is a little bit of precedent for trying to sell smaller government and less government activity. But obviously now it's spun out of control because he's also incompetent and he really doesn't understand what he's doing. And the people around him are really political people, not administration people. Aaron. I think the issue is how long can the federal government, and that's what we're talking here, federal government, steer the ship on its own, right? How long does just these institutional norms keep things going? And so this is where re-election, if Donald Trump to be, were to be re-elected, I think it has much more long-term consequences because we're talking, it's not even just benign neglect, but it's neglect with very real implications. I think it is important to point out, though, that when you're not just appointing people, when you're just not even bothering to put folks, even ideologues, not even bothering to put ideologues in that space, it does open up a lot of room for state governments to act. And state governments can be more activist in a lot of ways. And that's very much in keeping with um, conservative ideology of states' rights and things like that. Like, especially at DOJ, they don't want a strong Department of Justice. They want states to run it. And we know when states get more power in the U.S. context, what happens on racial politics. States have jumped in to take care of net neutrality. So, I mean, states can actually be the tip of the liberal spear as well. Well, Mm -hmm. yeah, activists, as as Aaron was saying. So coming up, more political analysis with the mass politics profs. Now that we've covered what's happening in Washington, D.C., mostly I got one more thing. We're taking a look at what's to come in Massachusetts. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. This week, we're dedicating our whole show to local and national politics. Four of the mass politics profs are here to give us their insight and analysis into what's going on in this contentious political climate. I'm here with Mo Cunningham, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at UMass Boston, and Peter Ubataccio, Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Stonehill College. Also joining me from the studios of New England Public Radio is Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. So let's jump right back into our conversation. Can't leave this conversation without talking about Me Too in politics in the Trump administration. Brought home very, very recently in the last few days with the Rob Porter resignation. This was a gentleman who um, had a very high ranking, but apparently no FBI clearance right next to the president. He would clear all the documents that the president would see. And his two ex-wives have accused him with documentation, with pictures of his beating them, horrible domestic violence. He was praised by Chief of Staff John Kelly before the pictures came out, then still praised a little less so after they came out. They did not urge him to resign. He resigned himself. And finally, the latest information is that John Kelly and everybody else knew as early as August of last year, which should have, according to ethics people, prevented his ever being that close to the president or having any kind of clearance. So that's where we are. Yeah. yeah. It's not good, is <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for me, it, it, this speaks to so much. It speaks to the lack of professionalism in the Trump administration. Like, some of this wasn't malice. This was just stupidity. And that's not where it stops. But some of this is, oh, maybe that's not that big of a deal. They just don't know what a big deal it is to put someone who's been accused with a lot of evidence here, not, you know, just out of thin cloth, so close to the presidency. And then you wonder, as the Me Too movement has taken off, why wasn't somebody sounding some alarm bells? And then it speaks to the fact that the Trump administration has been absolutely abhorrent on the Me Too movement. We've got a president who has been accused again and again. We all listen to the tape of sexual harassment, not physical abuse. Very important to make that point. But this is an administration with absolutely no standing on the Me Too movement. Every time it gets brought up, they do the like, well, what about Bill Clinton? I'm like, are you for? True. Bill Clinton, sexual harasser. In the 90s, that's terrible. What's going on today? Mm -hmm. um, and so I just think this is emblematic. It's a very stark case, but it's emblematic of how poor this administration is on understanding women's issues and sexual harassment, sexual abuse. Gerald, what's the impact? Because I did, one other little piece of information people should remember is that Hope Hicks, who is the communications director for the Trump administration, is dating Rob Porter and was... Hopefully not uh, anymore. Well, like, I don't know. She and she helped draft the statement <laughs> saying he's an all-around great guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, the administration operates on this issue as if they are bulletproof because their base believes that this is actually sort of a just a culture war issue. So they proceed and they do this on many issues as if bulletproof. So so Aaron is pointing out some obvious rational ways one might look at this issue, but that's not the way they look at most issues. So we shouldn't be surprised. The Me Too movement, which I'm sure we all hope has positive impact on, the, on this issue, is simply not an issue that hurts them with their base presently. They are able to move the ball or change the view. And they kind of, if you think about it for a second, what else could they do given that 
the president's obviously a sexual harasser. So, I mean, it, since he's a sexual harasser and everybody knows it, you might even argue that ignoring it is their only option. Mm. Peter. Well, I think going back to your original point, this also, again, raises the issue of John Kelly's judgment, mm. which is right. seems to be consistently poor. Right. Uh, he is he was brought in to clean up this White House. What has emerged is uh, his own worldview, which seems very much in line uh, with Donald Trump. A man of John Kelly's experience should know better on so many of these issues. Um, he clearly has very little political antenna. And I think to Gerald's point, this is a, a White House that is content to govern by their base and their base alone. They have made no attempt to broaden it. Uh, the president seems content there. They're happy there. John Kelly seems perfectly pleased there, so much so that he's willing to, uh, when exposed, uttering a falsehood about a member of Congress, a woman of color, doesn't even have the honor or decency of apologizing mm -hmm. when it's very clear that he lied. So, you know, I think there's not much to add here except the counter reaction, the Me Too movement, the women's movement around the country is fascinating to watch because clearly this is building and growing and we're seeing it not only in activism online and elsewhere but in the number of women who are choosing to run for office up and down the ballot and it's only February and so there's there's a lot of activity out there that's going to be directed against this White House politically. Mo, there was a tiny bit of softening of female support in some of the Trump supporters in the last few months in races, some putting that back to the Me Too movement. What does this do to, you think, those numbers? And what will it have a further impact that maybe we don't see it until the next election? I think we will see an impact. I don't know. The pictures that came out about the, the first wife that he beat with the black eyes, those are appalling pictures. I don't know how anybody can look at that and not be disturbed. I don't know how anybody can go back to the Roy Moore situation and not be truly troubled. Uh, somewhere along the line, this has to catch up to him. And, and one word on John Kelly, I, you know, part of the job of the chief of staff is to keep you out of trouble, mm. you know, and to see these things early. He doesn't because these guys don't think it is trouble. That, right. Well, that's, and I, that's the problem. Yeah, they don't, you know, they look at it and say, ah, you know. And I'd, I'd like to build off of that point because I think that is so vital what Mo just said. It, a part of it is to not only do they not think it's not problematic, they think when it's brought up, they are the victims. Mm. Right. Yeah, right. That's when yeah. oh, they're going after Porter, he's one of us. It's like a child. It's not fair to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Well, uh, they think they're politically incorrect truth tellers. That's what yeah. they correct. Yes. And, and, and so we, plans. anytime mm -hmm. women's issues, women of color, mm -hmm. um, uh, dreamers, so on and so forth, anytime those people, air quotes again, are at the front of the stage making a claim, they are coming after me and I'm the victim in this. Meanwhile, you're in the over office. Like, you're not a victim of anything. You're the most powerful group in the world. Not only do they not find it problematic, they feel like these kind of conversations are ancillary. They were fixed in the past. Move on. You're coming after me. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to local politics because we need a happy story. Yeah. Right. Well, I don't, <laughs> yeah. don't I'm, I'm not putting happy on this, but uh, but it's interesting. Uh, uh, Boston City Councilor Ayanna Presley announced that she was running for Congress and against Mike Capuano. Here is a clip. Let's take a listen. This is from an NECN news report about it. 
It's not personal at all. Again, I respect the contributions of Congressman Michael Capuano. I certainly do think I bring a new lens. We all have our own authentic and unique uh, lens based on our walk of life. And certainly being a black woman has formidably shaped uh, my own. I've known Ayanna for a while. She's a good person. It's a free country. She's welcome to run. We had a discussion. I asked her, you know, what have I done that you disagree with? Just uh, trying to get an idea of what was she thinking. Um, and there was no substantive issues that she offered. Uh, and that's fine. You know, she talked about a different perspective, which I respect. All right, Aaron, I'll let you start off. I can't wait for this race. I am so <laughs> pumped. I'm such a political nerd about this one I because it fascinates me on so many levels. She's doing what nobody does. Nobody goes after an undamaged incumbent in their party unless it's like you're a moderate business conservative and the Tea Party's coming after you. As Capuana said, there's no like a big ideological shift between them. And so she's going after us because she wants the office. And that is bold. So like just as somebody who loves politics and studies politics, what she's doing is very bold. And in this era, when we want new people in office, she's making bold moves within the party. And then she says straight up, I know it's a majority minority district, the third. Mm -hmm. And I have experiences as an African-American woman that this guy doesn't. In a later quote, she said, uh, we need an advocate, not an ally. I was like, oh, you know, this is really rich. And so I think a lot of Democrats are quaking in their seats because if she wins, then everybody <laughs> else who thinks they're in a safe seat, never going to get a challenge from the left or from the sameness in their left is going to look out. And oh, the, one mm -hmm. other thing I'll say, if I was doing an empirical study of this, mm -hmm. I want to know where the money goes, because mm -hmm. there are plenty of donors that have given to Capuano and uh, Ayanna Presley, and said, I want to trace that money because there's a lot of people in Democratic circles who are like, wow, I want both of them. This is tough. <laughs> is it bold for a woman or just bold? I think it's bold, and I do. I think it's more bold for a woman, and I think it's more bold for a woman of color, mm -hmm. especially in you know Boston politics history. But it is bold to go after, even like when um, Seth Moulton went after Tierney. Tierney was so damaged mm -hmm. to go after an incumbent that isn't damaged, who shares much of your ideology. It is bold politics, and even more so for the reasons you brought up. Okay, jump in, Peter. A little bit of this strikes me as old wine, new bottles, right? This is, uh, <laughs> I, I seen my opportunities and I took them, George Washington Plunkett once said mm -hmm. uh, about politicians. And Ayanna Presley is one, I think, one of the most talented folks in Boston city politics and state politics. So I'm not at all surprised that she's looking to advance. Yeah. She has very little to lose, worth pointing out. She will remain a Boston city councilor mm -hmm. if this is an unsuccessful attempt. And she clearly understands what a lot of us are still trying to figure out, which is the political terrain has shifted. And there are big things happening in the country. And if there's an opportunity to take on the status quo, even if it's a member of the status quo who is well-regarded and well-liked on the right side of the issues for his district, this is probably the time to do it. And so I think that it's a little bit about seeing the seat and thinking, you know, if I want to have a shot at Congress, this might be the only time to do it because in an open race, let's say Capuano decided to retire, there'd be a dozen people vying mm, for this seat. Right. And so this may just be uh, good timing on Presley's part. And if she comes up short, given what we already know about her, I don't think she does herself any damage politically. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Peter Ubertaccio of Stonehill College, you just heard him, Mo Cunningham of UMass Boston, and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University. And Gerald, what do you think? I agree with what I've heard, but I think that because we're in such an unstable time, this is when smart politicians see opportunities, and I think she sees an opportunity. It will be interesting to see if that race takes on the shape of the sort of essentially left-center battle going on in the party or whether or not, Mm. whether it sort of is a more traditional Mm. new perspective approach. In other words, if from my perspective, if Bernie Sanders had run a certain kind of primary, it would have been less destructive. So the question is, will this be a less destructive primary or will it be a destructive primary? I don't know the answer, but I think that this is a smart move for her because she's going to put her foot in the door even if she loses, as long as she doesn't attack him personally or make it ugly. And I think that we're seeing this happening all over the country and even in Massachusetts with a, you know, we have a 32-year-old state senator actually seriously being thought about for the Senate presidency as well. And these are sort of odd things and we're in an odd time. Mo. Well, it's a straight demographic play. There isn't a dime's worth of difference between the two of them on substance. She didn't raise any substance. And his response, which we didn't hear there, was, well, I can't be anything but a middle-aged, late middle-aged white guy. So if people don't like that, then they're not going to vote for me. I think it's a complicated thing for the Democrats in a lot of ways, even Democrats nationally. You came out of 2016 and people said, we have a problem with white males. Well, here you've got somebody in a Democratic primary taking an aim at a white male on a, basically a demographic thing. And it's across that. It's intergenerational. It's gender and race as well. But basically somebody you have no policy difference with. And so I think for those reasons, it's an interesting and really portentous race for the Democrats nationally. But so I think it's also mm-hmm. kicking out the old guard. Yes, demographics are a part of it. That's a reality. We know when women get in office that they're more likely to bring up different issues. Men, you know, might vote, quote unquote, right, but are less likely to push them. And so I think the generational part is also a key part of that, because coming out of 2016, it was like, oh, the party's so out of touch. Cripes, if you're in Congress and you're 74, you're middle aged. right? You know, so I, I think that is yet another angle to this. And I agree that it is wildly complicated for the Democratic Party. It's just the degree to which you care about the Democratic Party. All right. So something that could be wildly problematic for the Democratic Party, Moulton versus Kennedy. They say, don't do that to us. Other people are seeing some kind of face off later. But any of you think that's a possibility at some point? That's Joseph Kennedy versus Seth Moulton. I think it's certainly a possibility. The Globe ran something, was it last week, on this. And the one thing buried in the article, and both of them, to their credit, brought this up, there's a lot of other talent in Massachusetts. So they are both got extraordinary resumes, and I, I'm not taking anything away from them. So does Maura Healy. So does Catherine Clark. So do, there's a lot of others. I think it is not their fault at all, but it's quite gendered just because they're two pretty attractive, you know, younger white guys. They're the new face when Massachusetts has so many others that should be a part of that. That conversation. 
I would uh, just reiterate that in terms of uh, there was another article on Mm -hmm. on, uh, Moulton's recruitment efforts, which are impressive, not quite as impressive as Catherine Clark's, however. And so I think there's we're giving some undue attention, perhaps, to these and to their credit, as Aaron pointed out, they reminded folks of folks like Catherine Clark and and Moore Healy. We shouldn't really need to be reminded, however. I mean, I think there is an incredible amount of talent. I'll, I'll just quote John Walsh, the former chair of the Massachusetts Democratic Party, often refers to a deep talent pool in Democrats in this state. And indeed, there are. There are many members of the party who are doing amazing things and have a very bright future in state politics and national politics if they want it. Well, let me move on to another woman who had a bright political future here in Boston and chose to exit, and that's Linda Dorsina Forrest. She was the only black senator, state senator in the legislature. She spoke to WGBH's Joe Matthew at Victoria's Diner, which straddles Dorchester and South Boston. That was part of her district, about her exit from public service. She left to take a job with uh, a huge job with Suffolk Construction. She will be the Northeast Region Manager for Diversity, Inclusion, and Community Relations. And she will deliver her farewell address next Wednesday, February 14th. So here's Linda Dorsina Forey. I've been in the public service for 22 years, and I understand how folks are feeling, but this is an incredible opportunity, I would say, you know, to join the private sector. I've never worked in the private sector professionally before, so I'll be able to bring everything that I've been able to do as an advocate, you know, working on issues that have serious impact around access and opportunity, um, you know, to make sure that people have a chance in the private side, and I'm really excited about that. I was the only black senator. Um, There are 40 state senators in Massachusetts. There are 351 cities and towns. Um, And so, yeah, no doubt about it. That played a fact. You know, I did think about that as well. So some people very upset. A, they didn't know it was coming. It felt very abrupt. And B, no one in the pipeline, though someone has just announced that he's going to run for his Evandro, and I'm blanking on his last name right now. Cavallo. Cavallo. Yes, thank you. Is going to run for the seat. And she's head of a lot of initiatives, very popular in many circles, had worked really hard. It's a loss. I agree wholeheartedly with it. I was really surprised, like many. The one thing that bothers me about it, finish your term. It drives me crazy. Like, I don't quit my classes halfway through the semester. Finish your term. I don't begrudge her the opportunity. It's real. You know, I think all the reasons she gave are totally fair, and she should be able to make up her own mind and all that. I just, as someone who cares about seeing the state legislature look more like Massachusetts and see some of the policy initiatives speak to the whole of Massachusetts more, it's unfair to put it all on her shoulders, but it doesn't mean I wasn't like, and this is editorializing, I wasn't like, darn it, I don't want you to go. (laughs) (laughs) Mo? She was the only person of color in the Senate, uh, a Haitian-American Years ago, I had uh, I had Jared Barrios, who was then a state mm. rep from Cambridge, come to my class, and he was a state rep, and he was telling me he would get constituent calls from Lawrence and Holyoke, yeah. and I'd say, why would you get constituent calls from Lawrence and Holyoke? He said, because I speak Spanish and my staff speaks yep. Spanish. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, it's not just a loss for the district, but a loss for the state, and also, I can't say that's weird on the radio, I guess, but Haiti was one of those countries yes. that... You know, the, the, the president uh, Trump had a maligned about, yeah. in profane terms, mm-hmm. and I think it's a terrible shame to, to lose it. But I'm with you, you, you know, cutting out on your constituents in the middle. What does that say about politicians? It's really not good. 
Peter Obutaccio. Well, I agree with my colleagues. It's a terrible loss to the Senate. I think I, I would just uh, one quick correction. There is a, there is another person of color in the state Senate. He's a Republican. So that is oh, interesting. Right. Just, uh, just, just recently. Just, just recently. recently. That's, that's right. right. Dean Tran. And so, that's right. Yeah. yeah so uh, we apologize, Dean Tran. You know. <coughs> well, it just happened <laughs> yeah, fairly right, fairly right. recently. Yes. And um, but I think that if I'm the Democratic Party, which is the overwhelming majority in both the House and Senate, this should prompt some very serious soul searching about mm -hmm. your nominations. And most of these districts, Democrats are going to be safely elected and reelected. I think it goes back to our conversation about, you know, City Councilor Presley uh, taking on Congressman Capuano. I mean, the, there are real issues here uh, about color and gender and representation in the legislature. And while it's a loss, as my colleagues point out, this doesn't rest on Senator Forey's shoulders, nor should it. But because she was the only uh, you know, woman of color in the state Senate, she becomes that visible representation. I would just say, I would love to see her come back to public service mm -hmm. after maybe 20 years of private service. Mm -hmm. It'd be a really right. interesting study mm -hmm. about things that you thought and uh, how mm -hmm. government should work right. relative to private industry. She certainly has a lot to offer and I think could have had a very bright future here in Massachusetts politically. My hope is that she'll just continue to do those great things for a pretty impressive corporate entity in the city. Uh, Gerald? First of all, I, I agree with my colleagues 100%. It seems like the issue that's sticking in the craw is that she's leaving early. So let me just play devil's advocate for a second here. The conversation about the significance of her leaving might actually be easier to have because she's leaving early. In other words, we could spin this or think of this as uh, not quite as negative a thing to leave early. And by the way, we don't know how big the opportunity window was. And senators going to greener pastures is, uh, is as old as the Senate itself. So I think maybe this does allow her exit to get its own place in the uh, discussion a little bit more exclusively. We have just a few minutes, and I want to go around a round robin and get you all to weigh in on what you think the main points will be in the 2018 midterms. Gerald, since you just spoke, you can speak yeah, again. Yeah, thanks a lot for sticking <laughs> yeah, to that. Yes. Uh, well, I, my, my sense is that, and it uh, goes along with the deals that have been made, it seems like the Democrats are going to count on almost exclusively anti-Trump strategy, a violation of democratic norms. I don't particularly think that is the best way to go in a congressional election, and especially when you're providing policy victories of a sort, or at least policies that can be claimed as victories for okay. incumbent Republicans. Right. And, I, and the Republicans are just going to say, we, we, we got stuff done. We, ra we, uh, we lowered your taxes. Uh, we did good stuff. Mo. I don't think there's any issue but Trump. And he keeps it that way. I mean, the pot is boiling all the time. I mean, I almost forgot to mention Roy Moore here because it <laughs> happened a couple of months ago. The pot boils every single day. He revels in it. It's destructive of this democracy, frankly, but I think Trump continues to be the issue all year long. Okay, Aaron. I think that's fair. I think they'll match material and symbolic. The symbolic is what Mo just said. Trump, the assault on the office, the assault on democracy. But we knew who he was when he was coming in. So I think that has to be paired with an economic argument and tying it to entitlements. Things that Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid, SSDI remain wildly popular. So it has to be, this is an assault on our democracy and it's a problem. And guess what? Your pocketbooks are worse off. Your family's worse off. And Peter. So my short list was the president and the economy and uh, entitlement and budgetary issues. 
Locally, however, I just want to make a plug for in, in Massachusetts for folks running for governor mm-hmm. and for the legislature. I think it will be the management of the state. And I, and I don't think the anti-Trump tide will uh, wash over here, in part because there aren't that many pro-Trump Republicans who will be running. But I think the issues are going to be different. I think Charlie Baker goes into this election differently placed than a lot of Republicans around the country. Okay. Thank you, Mass Politics Profs. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Callie. <laughs> Mo Cunningham is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Gerald Duquette is an associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. Aaron O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And Peter Upataccio is the dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Stonehill College. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.